Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian Enton in for Ashley tonight. She is still under the weather tonight. Hopefully, she's getting some rest and she's going to feel better soon. Uh, but we've got breaking news tonight. Two major breaking news stories. First of all, Rachel Morin. Two big developments in the case. We've got the sheriff standing by live. Uh, he's going to join me in just a minute with uh, really some bombshell information. We didn't have progress for a while in this case. Well, we've got progress now. Uh, we're going to tell you about it in just a second. But first, uh, another element of breaking news. This just into News Nation. And it is the moment that police in Las Vegas found out that a deadly hit-and-run crime spree was happening in their city. The 911 calls from the morning of August 14th. Remember, that's the day that two laughing teenagers in a stolen car intentionally hit and killed 64-year-old Andy Probst and recorded the whole thing in a sickening video that went viral. Well, the 911 calls have just now been released, and you're going to hear them. What those two heartless teenagers didn't know uh, was that Andy Probst was wearing an Apple Watch, which has a feature, I didn't know this, that automatically calls 911 when it appears uh, that the wearer has had an accident. Listen to this recording. Uh, we'll put the captions on the screen of the moment immediately after Andy Probst was deliberately knocked off his bicycle and just left for dead. The owner of this Apple Watch has taken a hard fall and is not responding to their watch. The emergency location is latitude 36.2782, longitude minus 115.2515 with an estimated search radius of 5 meters. This message will repeat in 5 seconds. The owner of this Apple Watch has taken a phone call and is not responding to their watch. The emergency location is latitude 36.2782, longitude minus 115.2515 with an estimated... Gosh, that's just frightening and so sad to listen to. Thankfully, those bystanders and witnesses were there to talk to the 911 dispatcher. Unfortunately, Andy Propes died later in the hospital. Uh, those two teenagers are charged with killing him, and they will face murder charges as adults. Uh, another difficult 911 call to hear is from about a half an hour beforehand. Remember this. Police say those same teenagers struck another man on a bicycle and left the scene there, too. It was another hit and run. And there's a 911 call for that one, too. Listen to this call. It's the victim of that hit and run, a 72-year-old man who thankfully survived, was not critically hurt. Uh, but this is how he described what happened to him. It was just a dark SUV. Dark SUV? No okay. He's and you said friend. the bumper is behind at the scene? The inner fender is laying here with my smashed bike. And 48501. 
He ran me over on purpose. He, he ran me. you over on purpose? Why do you say that? He got behind me. I was watching in my rearview mirror on my bicycle. Okay. And I'm going, oh, shit. And I got as far to the right, up against the curb as I could. Okay. Just blowing on his horn. Just kept on blowing. You, you didn't know who this person is, do you? Oh, no. No, not even. It was done on... How old are you? I'm 72. 72? Okay. Yes. And uh, where is your bicycle now? Are you in the northbound lanes or southbound lanes? I'm in the northbound lane. I have blinking lights on, everything. He's, I mean, he did it on purpose. Wow, that man is lucky to be alive. And to think what happened just 30 minutes later. Las Vegas prosecutors now have both of those teenagers locked up, uh, and they are charged with open murder and a handful of other charges, not as juveniles again. They are now charged as adults. One suspect is 18 and the other is 16. Uh, they are scheduled to be in court tomorrow, formally arraigned. Obviously, we are going to stay uh, all over this one. But now let's get to our second big piece of breaking news, and, and this is major. The Rachel Morin investigation. It's been 50 days, almost two months since Rachel Morin's body was found off a popular hiking trail in Maryland. And even with the video of the suspect, uh, there still hasn't been an arrest. Morin, a 37-year-old mom of five, was found brutally murdered August 6th on a hiking trail in Bel Air, Maryland. DNA at the crime scene matched DNA at a home invasion and assault in Los Angeles back in March. Police released this doorbell video of the suspect. You can't see his face fully. You see here, we've seen it so many times, but he's described as Hispanic in his early to mid-20s, 5 feet 9 inches tall and about 160 pounds. And have you ever noticed, this is the new part here, this is big, have you noticed the arm closing the door behind the suspect? Watch with me here. Watch, there's the arm, right there. Close the door. We've slowed it down so you don't miss it. Tonight, we can exclusively report that detectives have identified and spoken to the man that that arm belongs to. Again, that is a big development, considering we knew nothing about who that arm belonged to. We can also confirm that the reason detectives went to Chicago, we now know they went to Chicago, to interview a person connected to the same home invasion assault case. They are not saying if that person was a suspect, just connected. They're not saying if the person they went to Chicago to interview is the person whose arm that is. We're going to try to get to the bottom of it with the sheriff in just a second. Also tonight, Rachel Morin's family uh, is far from backing down on their fight for answers and justice. I mean, can you blame them? It's so awful. The family and their attorney uh, have now given us permission to announce exclusively on the show that they are doubling the reward from $10,000 to $20,000 for information leading to a conviction of the person responsible for Rachel's murder. We can also report the Spanish-language digital campaign the Morin family launched last week has reached over 81,000 people as of this morning. Uh, more than 30 ads were posted online in Spanish with the suspect photo after investigators said uh, that they believe the suspect is Hispanic, and that is helping. There are new tips coming in because the family did that. It feels like all this work is finally, finally getting us closer to a killer. Uh, Harford County Sheriff uh, Jeff Gaylor uh, is joining me live now. Sheriff, I mean, amazing work. I knew you guys were going to start making progress on this. Um, we knew we just had to wait. I first want to ask you about that arm, because I noticed the arm from the beginning. What can you tell us about who that person is, how you were able to identify that person? 
Sure, Brian. And again, thanks for having us on tonight. And again, the opportunity to send this message. Uh, we're still looking for this suspect and any opportunity we have to go um, national uh, and, and share this because we don't know where this guy's laying his head at night. You know, we need people to look at that video, look at that picture and help us identify him. Uh, but indeed, you know, from the beginning, uh, when we had the video, a lot of questions came in about who's closing the door, whose arm is that? And I actually misspoke. Uh, I believed it was a female's arm who was in the, the, the victim of the assault there. Um, it's actually a male's arm and uh, investigators investigators had it right. I just had it wrong in one of the earlier interviews. Um, but it is a male's arm. And when our investigators were in uh, Los Angeles. They interviewed many people uh, in reference to uh, the, what happened out there and tied back to our case. Um, and we were able to speak to that individual as well. And he, he is not a in any way tied to the case as a suspect at all. Uh, but he also was not able to provide us an identity of that suspect. So was there a female victim and also a male victim in the assault? Uh, there were, oh, the, the male subject was not assaulted, um, but there were other people in the residence. And again, I have to be very careful on what I speak about. Los Angeles is still investigating that home invasion, that assault that occurred out there. And that's an open case for that agency. And uh, just as I wouldn't want them to you know, be speaking out of turn or incorrectly about our case, you know, I have to be careful and how far I go with what I say. But we have spoken to that person and with hopes that he might be able to uh, lead us to an identity uh, to match the person in the video. That was not fruitful um, at, at this point in time so far. It, it's interesting the way he closes the door. It like almost looks so calm. Uh, and I know you have to be careful what you say, and we don't want to do anything to you know, impede the investigation here. But uh, I mean, did, did he know the person? Was he able to give you more information about who this person is? No, he did not know him. Um, at least what the, yeah, that's what our investigators have found out so far. That they, the people in the residence did not know the, the person who had committed the home invasion and the assault there. Um, but thankfully, they were able to uh, uh, preserve this video evidence or else, you know, because this happened sometime before our case, uh, you know, way back earlier in the year. And thankfully, without this video, we wouldn't have uh, this image of our suspect, who, again, is tied back to our homicide here in Hartford County, uh, Maryland, because of the DNA. Do you know how many people were in the house, Sheriff? I, I do, but again, uh, it's, it's more than just the two, but I'm not going to go into great detail on something that's not our investigation. Yeah, I understand. I'm just hoping that if there were more people, hopefully that means more people that you can talk to who can give you like a better idea of what exactly. We, we see the side profile, but maybe they can give more info uh, on you know what his actual face looks like and maybe push things forward that way, hopefully. I want to ask you, number two, about this other development that we've learned about that you actually went out or one of your investigators actually went out to Chicago um, as part of this investigation. What, what can you tell us about that, Sheriff? Sure. We, uh, information that we learned, our investigators learned out in Los Angeles, led us to another interview that we wanted to do in Chicago. And we wanted to do that in person, you know, um, cold without the uh, person that we were coming. Not of a suspect. He, he is not a suspect in any way. Uh, but we still wanted to interview that individual cold and try to get facts from him. And I, I have to say that, you know, that, uh, again, that person, we spoke to him. He is not a suspect, uh, but he also was not able to help us identify that person. Okay. Well, I can, I can just hope that all of these little, uh, little developments are helping us push closer um, to finding this man who killed Rachel Morin because we all, that's what we all want, Sheriff. I mean, that's what everybody wants. Oh. 100 percent. We, we share that desire. Our investigators have worked this case aggressively since August 5th, you know, since August 6th, when um, her body was discovered here along the hiking trail. 
Um, and we're, we're far, well, we're, we're never going to give up, but we're, we're far from um, exhausting leads that we are currently working. Um, so there's a lot. And as you touched on, the family is uh, working cooperatively with our investigators, you know, the, letting us know what they're doing. Um, and I just, I learned today that they were going to up the reward. Um, again, I've said if, if money is the motivator that has somebody turn this person in, then great. There, there's no amount that's too great to uh, bring this guy to justice and put him behind bars. Yeah, and money does motivate people. I mean, we know that. We've seen that on this show. I mean, it's kind of unfortunate, but it does. So hopefully doubling the reward, that, that will hopefully help. Uh, Sheriff, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll stay in touch with you. Uh, Rachel Morin's family uh, has been doing their own investigative work, canvassing uh, the Ma and Pa Trail and, and surrounding neighborhoods three times. They're doing it themselves, going out there door to door, handing out flyers in English and Spanish with info about the case and the suspect, uh, the man leading those efforts. Uh, is Matt McMahon, father of Rachel's oldest child. He joins me now. This is his first uh, national interview, and, and we appreciate him being with us. Also joining me is Rachel's sister, Rebecca Morin, and the Morin family attorney, uh, Randolph Rice. Uh, all three of you, thank you so much for, for being with us. I know how, how difficult this is every single day. Matt, I want to start with you because we haven't spoken w- with you before. I'm very, very sorry for your loss. Um, I, I know that for you personally, you have this very personal feeling that you have to get out there and help find this guy. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, not just because Rachel was part of my life for, for 19 years, um, but because she's the, the mother of, of my daughter uh, and four other amazing children, all of whom I absolutely love. Um, so I need to do it for me, for the children, uh, for Rachel, and also to make sure that, that nobody else experiences what we experienced and, and what Rachel experienced. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. How, how are, the, how are the, the children doing tonight, Matt? Um, all the children are doing differently just because they're, they're unique individuals. Um, they're doing the best that they can. Uh, they're delighted to hear that the reward has been increased. Um, the only thing that any of them really want is to have this suspect apprehended. Um, so they understand that this might move that, uh, a little bit closer to reality. Um, but they are struggling, um, as would be expected. Yeah, absolutely. I, I again, I, I can't imagine what, what they're going through. Rebecca, um, are police telling you anything new? I mean, we just heard from the sheriff to me, it seems like good news that they are, at least baby steps, but it's still progress. The fact that they identified the arm that they're out doing interviews. Is there anything uh, new that you've learned, Rebecca? Um, They haven't given me any new information at all. Um, Pretty much what you know is what they've told me also. I think, Rebecca, the the doubling of the reward, though, is huge um, because money talks, sadly, uh, to some of these people out there, and uh, and that could really make a difference. Unfortunately, it does, and I'm really hoping that by doubling the reward, somebody who really does know something will come forward soon. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I, I want to ask you, because you've canvassed the area yourself. You've been out there repeatedly looking around, looking for clues. What have you noticed about the area, Matt? What What stands out to you? Um, um, oh, sorry. Yeah. I know both of you. I'll start with Matt, though. I'm curious because I know that you've you've spent some time out there, Matt. Well, during our first canvassing, uh, the one item that stuck out the most um, 
was a lack of the uh, Spanish-speaking Hispanic community in, in knowing that anything had even happened, uh, including families that live just a couple hundred feet from the trail. Um, we heard that a lot from uh, several different volunteers. Um, that's one of the reasons we're handing out uh, bilingual uh, flyers, and that was also the catalyst for uh, the digital campaign campaign that uh, Mr. Rice uh, had launched for us. Which it sounds like ha has been successful so far. A lot more tips have come in. Uh, obviously, um, Rebecca, we're so focused on the search, the manhunt for this guy. We want to get all the little details out with that, but I just I don't want to lose focus of of who your sister was. Um, and I just I, I want people to know what I mean. I've, I've I've talked to to you guys before about this, but I, I just want people to remember how amazing she was. Tell tell us a little bit um, about Rachel, Rebecca. Well, I can tell you that the thing that people noticed the most about her was her smile and her laugh. She had a great sense of humor. She was so much fun to be around. Um, I would have to say our best memories were during the holidays. She was always the last one to show up when we all got together. But when she did show up, it would be, it got louder, it got warmer, it got brighter, and it got a whole lot funner. <laughs> And she was working on a book. Yes, she was. Um, she went through a lot of things in her life. And so she decided to start writing a book for young teen girls about um, developing good relationships and um, self-esteem. Yeah, it's just, I mean, to hear that, that she was working on that and the way this has now unfolded, I mean, it, it's just breaks my heart that she wanted to help other people and now we're in this situation. Yeah, uh, I... <laughs> sorry. No, I understand. I mean, I think, you know, people see the pictures and, and she's a beautiful woman. I think people have connected to this story, but hearing the way you talk about her, I mean, I, I don't think people realize just how amazing she was, Rebecca. I don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that she took care of herself. Um, that was something she knew she had to do to take care of herself, to be, you know, a better mother. A lot of moms do not take me time. They don't take care of themselves because they're so busy running around taking care of everybody else. But she found the balance between it. I mean, she would, after having a baby, she would work out with the baby. She would make the baby part of her workout routine. She always found a way to be able to do the stuff she needed to do for herself and still take care of her kids. So, so Randolph, where do we go from here? I mean, it, it seems positive that the sheriff is sharing that they're, you know, knocking on doors and getting more information. The reward is now doubled, which is incredible work that you all have done. Um, the, the Spanish flyers have gone out, which seems like it's helping. What's the next step? I mean, what more, what more can be done? Well, we're hoping that the, um, the money that we put in today will encourage other individuals and businesses to step forward and contribute to the uh, Rachel Morin Reward Fund. I think that as we get more money um, into that reward, that, that will entice more individuals, hopefully, to identify that gentleman in that video. Um, in terms of what we do next, I think that obviously there's a lot of information as a former prosecutor and, and criminal defense attorney. I know that there's plenty more evidence that the police have to go through. I'm confident that they're going to 
review that information, that evidence, try to make those links. Um, there's a lot of data that takes time in these investigations. Yeah. Um, cell phone data and, and video data that has to be analyzed. And so those are things that I think are going to take time. Uh, it's frustrating for the family. But I think as we put more pressure uh, on getting that image out there, somebody's going to recognize him and identify him. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it, it's taken a long time, but I think we all have faith. Uh, and, and the fact that the sheriff continues to come on with us pretty much every time we ask, I think says a lot, that they're really, really invested uh, in hunting this guy down. Uh, Rebecca, I, I'm just curious. I mean, again, I'm, I'm just so hung up on how amazing your sister was writing the book. It sounds like she was an amazing mother. Um, when was the last time you talked to her, Rebecca? What, what was that conversation like? It was actually um, a couple of days before she went missing. Uh, we were trying, we were all trying to figure out how she would be able to come down to Kentucky um, because my other brother had lost a baby. And so some of us were already down there, some were in the process of coming down. And we were trying to help her figure out a way to come down with us and, um, you know, swap around her work schedule. And, you know, her kids were going to stay at my house with my teens. Um, but it just unfortunately didn't work out. Did she ever say anything about, like, being scared of anyone or being nervous when she went out jogging or walking on the trail? Like, did anything like that ever come up? No, but... um that week she did seem off, but it, I don't know if it was because there was something going on that she wasn't saying or if it was just because everybody was upset about what had happened to our niece. Yeah. Well, I just want to make sure everybody sees that tip line right there at the bottom of the screen, 410-836-7788. Take a really good look at the left side of the screen because someone knows who this guy is. And I thought it was going to happen much faster than this because it's a pretty good picture. Um, and now we know the sheriff has interviewed the people inside the house. They're making progress, but everybody take another good look at this because someone should be recognizing this guy by now. Um, Rebecca Morin, uh, Matt McMahon, and uh, Randolph Rice, we really appreciate you coming on. I hope we can have you on again. We're committed to continuing to cover the story no matter how long it takes. Um, and we appreciate your time tonight. Thanks, Thank Brian. you for having Thanks. us. Okay, still to come, uh, should the family of an accused serial killer actually get his guns back? And this isn't just any serial killer we're talking about. Police seized more than 280 guns from Rex Huerman's home. That's who we're talking about after his arrest in July. And his wife now wants them. I'll tell you what she has planned for them. Uh, that's coming up next. Rex Heurman wants his guns returned to his family. The lawyer for the Gilgo Beach murder suspect says Heurman's wife and two kids are out of money, and the guns could be sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Investigators seized more than 280 firearms from Heurman's house after his July arrest. Uh, the collection reportedly includes vintage guns from both the Civil War and World War I, and at least 20 assault rifles. Now, there's no indication uh, that any of the guns were used during Heurman's alleged crimes. His wife, Asa Ellerup, says the guns were legally purchased and are uh, marital property. There is one possible stumbling block, though. Heerman had permits for only 92 of the guns. Uh, that's actually less than a third of his arsenal, which means the rest may have violated gun laws. Now, no word on when the judge will rule. A pretrial conference is scheduled for Wednesday, and a motion hearing uh, is scheduled for October 2nd. I'm joined now by uh, Robert Macedonio, 
the attorney for Rex Hurman's wife, Asa Ellerup, and uh, Ves Mitev, the lawyer, Afi Hurman's uh, two adult children. I, I appreciate you both um, being with us. Robert, I, I want to start with you. Um, obviously, we know what Hurman's accused of. He's accused of being a serial killer. Um, wife and kids have not been accused of anything. Important to say that. I always try to remind people of that because they've taken a, a, a lot of heat, a lot of it unfair, obviously. Um, is, is selling the guns really the only way for them to have any money to make money at this point? Rex was the sole financial supporter of the family. Um, Asa was not employed and Victoria worked for her father. So that was the sole source of income, which that business has basically been shut down at this point in time. So there is no other income coming into the household this time. Do we have any idea, Robert, at like what all those guns would be worth? It's my estimation after looking at the inventory of the guns and speaking to people that they're worth anywhere between two to three hundred thousand dollars. OK, so it's a significant, you know, sort of life changing amount of money. It's a significant amount of money. There was discussions that you know, Asa had with Rex, you know, over the course of the, the history that those guns were valuable, that there was a period of time they may or may not want to use them to pay for Victoria's college during COVID when, you know, the industry completely much shut down everybody's income. So there is a substantial value to them and she deserves to have them turned over and appraised and sold and that money divided up according to the divorce. So Vess, I mean, there's no indication that the guns are connected to the killings that Hewerman is, is accused of. Um, I'm just trying to think of what the police might be thinking here in terms of not releasing them. Do you, I mean, do you think they're concerned that, like, at some point it could be possible that they need them in evidence? Like, wh- what's, what's the reasoning that you understand for not just releasing them? Well, we, we have no reason, and, and that's part and parcel of why we are, uh, as previously uh, advertised, we're going to be filing a notice of claim actually this week um, against law enforcement, against the county, against the law enforcement agencies that were running roughshod, you know, across the property, into the house, tearing up the floorboards, tearing up the rafters, seizing items that had in no way, shape, or form anything to do with any investigation, personal heirlooms, antiques, so on and so forth. So to our our minds, we have no idea, you know, even some of these antique muskets or pistols or, or things that have absolutely no evidentiary probative value, we have no idea why they're not yet being returned. And that's, again, why we are going to file that notice of claim this week. What about this issue, Robert, that only 92 of the guns um, had permits, 188 uh, apparently being held illegally? I mean, could, could that become an issue? That, that, that's incorrect. The, okay. the ones that were on the pistol license are the ones that are required to be registered and put on a pistol license. Long guns, rifles, shotguns are not required to be put on a pistol license. And I want to make one other thing clear. We are not asking that these guns be returned to the House in Massapequa Park. Mm. Make that clear. We are suggesting that they be turned over to a federally licensed firearm dealer, appraised and stored there until they are auctioned off and are sold. So I want to be clear. The neighbors don't have to worry. Weapons are not going to be returned to this household. There doesn't have to be pandemonium in the neighborhood. Oscar is not seeking the return of the physical firearms, but they should be turned over to a federally licensed firearm dealer, appraised, and that value, whatever they may be auctioned off for, that, those monies being held and divided up according to the divorce agreement. That's it. I understand the optics of returning firearms to the home of an alleged serial killer. Right. Nobody's, looking to put, nobody's looking to put law enforcement in that position. Oscar is certainly not looking to put it in a position, nor the children. So I don't want the pandemonium to break out in the news or the media to go neighborhood knocking on door to door, alerting the neighbors. That's not going to happen. No one's suggesting that happen. 
Yeah, I understand that. That makes sense. It's really just about the money and needing the money. Um, Robert, can, can you tell us how Asa and and the kids are doing? Um, you know, I haven't heard much lately. I mean, is, is she still in the house? Um, and has she reached out to Huron at all? Like, what's what's sort of the latest on that front? They are still living in the house, and she cannot reach out to Rex. He has to be an outgoing call from the jail. They have not visited him in person. Um, and frankly, there's nowhere else for them to go right now. That was their family house for the last 20-something years. So until you know arrangements can be made for her to go reside somewhere else, that's the only place they have to live. Is it this, the same with the kids, Vess, I'm guessing? I mean, have they, have they made any contact with him, or has he spoken to them recently? It's more or less the exact same thing. I mean, they continue to reside in the house. As Bob said, that's that's their only home. That's the only place they've known. That's that's their entire life. And, and again, part and parcel of that notice of claim that we've talked about uh, goes to the destruction uh, of that house and, and of its uh, uninhabitability uh, after the, the uh, unlawful, we say, search and seizure of, of many of their items and many of their valuables. But uh, again, they're they have not had uh, any contact with him, um, any meaningful contact whatsoever. And again, when we file this notice of claim, which will be this week, uh, in it will be some descriptions of what's going on from the time that, uh, you know, the initial arrest took place, the investigation, and now. Okay, we'll be looking for it, uh, see if there's, there's any... There's one, there's one other thing. Yeah, right. sure. There, Go ahead, there, Robert. There's, there's, there's a locket, there's personal jewelry of Asa's that was given to her by her father that was taken in the deceased. There's also a lot of mention about the Chevy Avalanche. There were two separate Chevy avalanches taken. One, which is alleged to have been identified as being possible linked to the crimes, and another one was purchased in 2013 by Rex. That truck is a Chevy avalanche. It's black. has nothing related to do with any crimes, not alleged to be any involved in it. That car has now been held by the prosecution for over two months. These are vehicles that she'd be able to use. I understand. Like, I'm not, yeah, so there's many items of personal yeah. interest of them that have nothing to do with the alleged crimes that could be returned to the family. Well, we'll follow it closely, see, see what happens with these guns and then with, uh, with, the, with the car also that you mentioned. Uh, Robert Macedonio uh, and Ves Mitev, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank okay. You. Still to come, uh, they are some of the most violent, cold-blooded serial killers in this country's history. So why don't we know their names? I'm not talking about the BTKs, the John Wayne Gacy's or the Ted Bundy's. They're among the most infamous. I mean, the killers who are just as brutal... But somehow they stayed anonymous and we never talk about them. Well, we've got their names, their faces and their story and the greatest expert to talk about them coming up next. It is a topic that we revisit from time to time here on Banfield, the American public's fascination with serial killers, especially those who are the most violent and ruthless. These murderers get clever nicknames in the media. They're played by famous actors in movies and TV shows. Uh, but our recent history is full of monsters who have done things that will keep you awake at night, uh, but you've never actually heard their names. I want to bring in Dr. Catherine Ramsland, forensic psychologist and author of this book, Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, uh, the BTK Killer. Uh, it's interesting, Dr. Ramsland, that we seem to talk about the same handful of serial killers, but when you actually go back and look through the history, there's a lot that were really, really awful and did things that were just as bad, but don't get the attention. I mean, how do you explain that? That's usually about the the time period, the media interest, um, the kinds of victims they would choose. Uh, there are any number of factors that will make them famous or not. So I want to go through a couple here, Dr. Ramsland, names uh, that people maybe haven't heard before, but they have really interesting stories. The first one is Edmund Kemper. 
Tell me about Edmund Kemper. Edmund Kemper has actually gotten a little more famous because he was on a very popular show. Prior to that, he he wasn't as well known, but he was a, a six foot nine giant of a guy who killed his grandparents when he was 15 years old. Once he got out, he started picking up hitchhikers, girls um, in Santa Cruz, and he would subject them to uh, rape. What he'd do is he would bind one of them. He'd pick up two at a time, bind one of them, and make sure she understood what he was doing to the other one, raping, stabbing, or shooting. And then uh, so he would use psychological torture as well as physical, then dismember the bodies, behead them, and have sex with the parts. Oof. I mean, that's brutal. Then making the one watch to know kind of like what was coming. That's... He's such a giant man. That's awful. What about uh, Richard Cottingham? What can you tell us about him? Well, Richard Cottingham had a family. He was uh, a computer programmer. He seemed to be an ordinary guy, but he also had a room full of torture devices. And he subjected victims, usually young women or girls, to prolonged torture as long as he could possibly uh, keep them alive. And biting He would burn them in vulnerable places, batter them, choke them. Um, He was really quite brutal with them. And he he has recently, he's going to become more famous because he's recently confessed to many more than he was convicted of. Just awful. What about um, Dean Coral? What what can you tell us about Dean Coral? So Dean Coral, about 50 years ago, used two teenage accomplices to bring boys to supposedly to his home for parties. And he would would strap them to torture boards, sometimes two at a time. And there were times when he would make them, if there were two of them, fight. Say that he would uh, let whoever survived fighting each other, he would let the survivor uh, live, which, of course, he didn't want to do. But then he would rape them. He used um, electrical stimulation on their genitals. He battered them. Um, tortured them, and then had his accomplices either strangle them often in front of another one of the boys who was there, um, and then um, kill them and take them out and bury them. Oh my so gosh. again, he used psychological torture. I was just reading the screen. It said shot, I think it said shot dead in 1973. What happened? What yes. happened there? Well, that was one of his accomplices. He brought. He had two kids in three, actually three of them, in his home, and was going to kill all three. The accomplice talked his way out, and then shot the serial killer who had recruited him onto this team. So, very unusual situation. The only accomplice who ever actually killed the predator that recruited him. Wow, very interesting. Uh, and what about Tommy? Uh, Tommy Lynn Sells. Tommy Lynn Sells was a guy who. It just if somebody rubbed him the wrong way or looked the wrong way, he he just would just decide to go uh, kill them, often in very brutal ways, and wanted them to know what they were in for. For example, one family invited him in for dinner, and the wife was pregnant. He took a baseball bat and uh, murdered them all. Forced the the woman ended up um, expelling her baby, and then he killed the baby with the baseball bat. Uh, and did other things with the baseball bat that were really gruesome. He just was a a brutal guy who would subject people to the worst things that he could think of, um, and he felt very justified in doing so. 
I mean, talk about brutal. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your mind around some of the things that you're saying, like just how awful they are. But it's, it's interesting yeah. to learn about some of these guys that we don't talk about as much. Uh, Dr. Ramsland, thank you for coming on. It was nice meeting you uh, at CrimeCon. I, I feel like I'm your friend now that I met you in person. So uh, it was great to see you this weekend. Thank you. Okay, still to come tonight, as many of you know, uh, I spent the weekend at CrimeCon, just mentioned it. Some of the biggest names from the biggest cases were there. I had the opportunity to sit down with the mother uh, of Ethan Chapin, just a, a wonderful, lovely woman. Um, and just, it's amazing the way she's trying to move forward from this. Uh, I'm going to share our conversation with, uh, with you coming up. So if you're able to tune in on Friday, you already know that I spent the weekend at CrimeCon in Orlando for News Nation. For those of you who don't know, CrimeCon covers all things true crime, discussion panels, and some of the most famous cases, meet and greets uh, with folks in the business. I, I didn't really know what to expect with the whole thing. Uh, I thought maybe it'd be a little weird, but it was actually pretty cool and serious. A lot of crime victims are there, a lot of uh, attorneys and all sorts of different experts and panelists. It's no surprise uh, the Idaho student murders were a big topic of conversation. Uh, Stacy Chapin, Ethan Chapin's mom, uh, she was there. I actually had the chance to sit down with her, ask her how she's holding up uh, since the murder of her son last November. People often ask me what it feels like to be in the middle of this. I actually have never watched true crime in my life. I mean, it's hard for me to understand why you'd want to. And yet now, weirdly, we're kind of at the epicenter of this and this, our kids' story. Um, it is interesting I, I, because you can't control some of the things that are said. And Ethan was genuinely like the greatest kid you could have ever met. I mean, and it's it's hard to read something and be like, well, you, you clearly obviously didn't. You don't know him because you wouldn't say that about him. I mean, you know, if you knew him personally, you would only be like, wow, he literally was the greatest person. And so I don't know. It is interesting. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a very profound kind of feeling to be that person but at this point all you can do is try to take that energy and turn it into something positive make something great out of it and that's really exactly what stacy has spent almost a year uh, doing taking the tragedy of the death of her son uh, and working incredibly hard to turn it into something positive so far uh, the foundation started and ethan's memory has already funded two scholarships with the goal to do as many as needed and she is determined I also asked Stacy about Hunter and Maisie. Uh, those are Ethan's triplet brother and sister. Jim and I have talked a number of times about what it feels like as parents to lose a child. I honestly cannot tell you what it must feel like because I'm not one to be a multiple and lose a piece of that. To lose a piece of that. To lose one of three or, you know, if you were, yeah. Yeah. I can't. We've just had to just put every support system in place and tell them you will go on and be fine. And we will we all have each other and we will be a, the very best version of what this new family looks like. I don't want to say new family, different family. looks yeah. like it's a different dynamic now without Ethan. Yeah, and really the entire family, they're, they're kind of like in a club they never asked to be in. I, I saw her right before that interview. We were sort of in the back of CrimeCon, and she was talking to Joe Petito, Gabby Petito's dad. Uh, she said to me that she told him that she wishes she didn't have to know him this way, 
uh, to be connected by terrible tragedies in their lives, but that she felt like some kind of comfort connecting with him since he had been in a similar situation navigating all of this, uh, and that she felt it was really powerful uh, that they were able to connect. That's yeah. the conversation that Joe and I literally just had. We wish, I wish I did not know you. I wish I did not know that, you know, that we were in this situation together. But we are. That's the conversation we just had. And you literally have to put your best foot forward. Yeah. You have to say, okay, we can do something better for somebody else down the road and make the world a better place for people. We just, you just have to. And just my last question, yeah. the children's book. I forgot to ask mm. you about that. Yeah, Tell me good. a little bit about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, my One of my really good friends, very early on again, going back probably to November, I would say. I can't tell you the exact date. Sent me a news release from a news... Or, I don't, and I can't even remember. I, you know, it's all... But it was a news release that an author had been given the rights to tell this story. And it was in that moment, you know, so it had to have been... Maybe the end of November. The story of what happened? Yes, yeah. the story of what happened in Idaho. Okay. Um, that's, that this author had been given the rights to tell this story. And this is a very difficult thing because you, as a parent, you literally think to yourself, why does somebody who doesn't know our son get to, and, and the other kids, I would imagine, too, I we, you know, but speaking just for Ethan, why does somebody who doesn't know Ethan get to tell his story? Like, that should be us. It should be us who be able to control the narrative and, you know, keep his integrity and his magnanimous personality. We should be the ones telling that story. And she did. She actually wrote The Boy Who Wore Blue in Ethan's Memory and Honor. It's available on their Families Foundation website. You can also donate there. They're doing amazing work. It's ethansmile.org, ethansmile.org. You can make a donation for those student scholarships that you heard her talk about. It was interesting, like... Seeing her at CrimeCon, I just got this vibe like she felt, I actually didn't get the vibe she told me. She felt like she um, like felt this calling to be there, I think, to speak on behalf of her son. She felt like if everyone else was going to be talking about her son and the murders, she felt like she wanted to be there to be able to tell his story. So I appreciate her taking time uh, to talk to me this weekend. Okay, still to come tonight, the family of a missing Oklahoma mom of six uh, has now identified her body. She was found near a creek wrapped in carpet, and the killer is still on the loose. Uh, We've got those details next. The search for a missing Oklahoma mom of six has sadly ended tragically. Her body uh, discovered by her cousin in a four-foot-deep culvert by a creep callously wrapped in what appeared to be waterlogged old pieces of wet carpet. 30-year-old uh, Michaela Meave Byers went missing 10 days ago after reportedly getting into a white Chevy pickup driven by an unidentified man described as tall and balding, sporting a beard uh, and sunglasses. You, you can see her there. Authorities say she got into the vehicle willingly, and despite absolutely suspecting foul play, uh, right now they still have no suspects, which is one of the reasons we're doing this story. Um, Michaela worked as a kindergarten teacher's aide at Macomb Public Schools and had been described by her husband as the backbone to their family, and a good woman and a great mom to her four stepchildren uh, and two adopted children. Obviously, we're going to watch this one closely. The hope is that the killer uh, is brought to justice. Hopefully, us doing the story tonight uh, will help with that. Same with Rachel Morin. That's why we wanted to lead with that story tonight. Uh, hopefully, someone's going to recognize that guy because every day that story just like irks me. How has no one recognized that guy so far? 
I mean, you heard from the sister that family's suffering so badly. So, uh, this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.